On this air check session, it is our season finale. Season two wraps up with our very special guest, president and founder of Jacobs Media, Fred Jacobs. Fred tells us about his days at Detroit Rock Radio's WRIF, The Riff, opening his consultancy business, Jacobs Media, his inventions of the radio formats of classic rock, The Edge, his superpower, and his go to album of all time. Let's go. <laughs> Welcome to Aircheck Season 2, a podcast about radio's personality. From radio personalities, managers, consultants, owners, and your most humble hosts. Oh, God help them. From Philadelphia, Rich DeSisto and Paul Kelly. Hey, this is Rich DeSisto. And I'm Paul Kelly. Welcome to Aircheck Season 2, the finale. Our guest today has helped radio stations and air talent in markets large and small get to the top of their game. He is the inventor of the classic rock radio format, and his career includes numerous contributions to radio over more than three decades. And he's a member of the National Radio Hall of Fame. He's the first radio consultant ever to be inducted, and very well deserved. We're thrilled to finally get to air check the consultant. Fred Jacobs knew that rock and roll would never die but become classic, as in classic rock, on hundreds of radio stations nationwide. Aerosmith, Led Zeppelin, The Rolling Stones, Pink Floyd, The Eagles, Fleetwood Mac, carefully created. The classic rock radio format has become the soundtrack for generations of radio listeners, with Fred Jacobs as the curator. When public radio operators realized the audience sensibility Fred Jacobs possessed, they invited him to their party. Oh my God, this is crazy. Fred sees the future ahead of most and shared his vision on how smartphones and apps would affect radio listening with broadcasters in virtually every format. Being a Motor City man, he recognized how important it is that radio operators got to know automotive manufacturers and the people deciding what goes in the dashboard. The Dash Conference in 2013 was another pioneering effort by Fred Jacobs, benefiting radio for years to come. Fred Jacobs, his keen understanding of the radio listener, has impacted thousands and thousands of radio stations for the good. Fred Jacobs, a 2018 inductee to the Radio Hall of Fame. Well, Fred, like your brother Paul did during the induction ceremony in 2018, let's again have him do the honors. It's with tremendous professional pride and unmeasurable personal pride that I welcome the next member of the National Radio Hall of Fame's class of 2018, my brother, partner, and closest friend, Fred Jacobs. Hey guys, thank you. Very nice, appreciate that. Fred, so happy to have you here on an air check session. Uh, we've been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time. Yeah, we have, and uh, thanks to me, we've kept kicking it down the road, so it's great to actually be able to sit down with you guys and talk a little radio and a little behind the scenes stuff and wherever you want to take it. I, uh, I've been around a little while, so uh, there's no shortage of uh, stories, escapades and all that good stuff. Well, when you first met Willie Marconi, could you tell us? <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, not that long, but uh, <laughs> but you know, it's really weird, Paul. I mean, when you when you come into the business and you're a kid, you always kind of think of yourself that way. And then like something flips at a certain point mid-career. And now I, I kind of look back at the whole thing and I'm, I literally always am the oldest guy in the room. So, so it's kind of cool and, and, and really kind of fun. And it's, it's just nice to have been around for 
you know, all this time and really seeing radio go through its, uh, its many different phases. And, you know, here we are in COVID world and, and we're going through another phase. So it's, it's really cool. I, I never thought I would be doing this this long and I have no uh, idea about retirement. You know, it's just not, you know, my, my retirement plan is not to retire is probably <laughs> the best way to put it. Well, for those of us in the radio business, when you hear the name Fred Jacobs, the first response is, oh, yeah, he's that radio consultant, not a radio consultant, but the radio consultant. Research has been in your blood forever, even before you became a radio program director. And one radio station in your hometown of Detroit, the legendary WRIF, The Riff, linked those two paths together. Tell that story. Yeah, I worked for the research company for a couple of years, and Riff was the big rock station that uh, I grew up with. And I got contacted by the program director of the station while I was doing research, and uh, they they wanted to do a research study. Have you heard the news? There's good rockin' at Riff. The home of rock and roll for over 14 years. Rock and roll music for our ears. Hey. There weren't very many companies uh, actually buying research in those days. It's very common today, but it was very unusual back then. What they what they used to think was research was Arbitron ratings. You know, if you want to know how you're doing, look yourself up in the ratings. There are your answers. And it's like, well, not really. I mean, that just tells you how many people are listening at a given period of time, but it doesn't tell you why. And it doesn't tell you anything about perceptions or your brand or any of that cool stuff. And so that was the kind of research that I like to do. So they brought me in. It was so much fun. I mean, you know, here you get to do research on your favorite radio station. And at the end of the process, they really felt like they had learned a lot. And they came back to me and said, hey, would you like to come to work here full time uh, as research director, whatever the hell that meant. So I took the gig. What I learned uh, the hard way is that uh, what the GM, the general manager, thought was research and what I thought was research were two different things. He, he thought research was how do you make uh, Arbitron ratings into sales pieces? And I'm like, no, that's not the kind of research I do. Uh, so it took, it took a while for us to get on the same page, but uh, I ended up working uh, at Riff uh, doing all kinds of research for them from focus groups to music testing to perceptual stuff. Uh, ABC, who owned the station at that time, what a wonderful company they were. And uh, they brought me to New York and I ended up uh, as research director for the owned FM stations. Back in the, the day, there were seven of them. I mean, uh, radio today, you can own hundreds of stations, but back then, uh, there were limits on what a company could own, 7 a.m., 7 FMs, and 5 TVs. That was it. So uh, I did research for uh, ABC's uh, 7 FMs, and then Riff got into a little ratings trouble and uh, called me and just said, would you like to come back home and be the program director? And I thought, wow, that sounds like fun, except I've never been a program director of anything before. And so I took the gig and um, programmed Riff for a couple of years through a real tough patch 
we were attacked by the Doubleday station, which was Wheels, W-L-L-Z, and they came on the air very commercial-free and very lean and mean, and we were kind of like this fat, bloated personality station that did promotions every night and talked a lot. Within every soul, there exists the need to be free. 98.7 WLLZ. A spirit as elusive as rock itself. It's the music of a newfound freedom. And we continue to deliver far less talk, better rock, fewer commercials, and up to $1,000 a day. So it really was an interesting war. And I learned a lot uh, on the job about radio programming. So that's it. You know, I mean, even though I've been at this for a long time, uh, there's only one set of call letters really on my resume. I, I've only worked for my hometown favorite radio station. So what a gift, right? I mean, what what an amazing career to be able to do that. Well, you talk about uh, how important the promotions were in that uh, street fight with the competition there with wheels. And as radio sits quietly during this pandemic, before the normal promotions can be planned that involve being in front of the listeners. I mean, let's face it, it's hard to be the politician during these times, even though we just had an election. Uh, But radio promotions have changed over the years for various reasons, and some have stayed the same. Sometimes what's old is new again. But can you talk a little bit about the radio promotions that you greenlighted as PD? What were some of the things going on back then? Well, we really had a lot of fun. I mean, back then, the radio station was very much a reflection of who you were as a person. Uh, when I programmed in Detroit, there were really four rock stations, and that was the case in a lot of markets. I mean, Philly was like that. Chicago was like that. Big markets had three or four stations that were all kind of similar in that they played rock and they had personalities. So you really had to be a great radio station to stand out and win in that environment. And so it was an all-out street war. It was all about presence. It was all about being wherever listeners were. Bumper stickers uh, were a huge part of it. And in the case of Riff, I mean, now I wish this was a visual podcast, but our logo was sort of like a uh, racetrack shaped kind of thing that ABC used for all their stations. And it really turned out to be versatile. We did research that revealed to us that we own the shape. Hi, Jim Johnson here to tell you about our all new Riff wearables, a whole new line of Riff clothing in a variety of contemporary colors like lavender, pink, turquoise, and of course, black and white. I'm about the muscle sweat. Well, no sweat. We got hooded muscle sweats. sweats. Well, there's hooded sweats too. Orange sweats. And from Detroit's only real rock and roll radio station, WRIF. So we didn't even need our call letters in the shape. Once people saw the shape, they knew it was us. And that's when we started plugging in band names in the bumper stickers. And so every time a band came to town, we would stamp their logo in the middle of our shape and pass those bumper stickers out. Hi, I'm Ozzy Osbourne, and you're listening to 101 WRIF, the home of rock and roll. And it was almost like a secret code that the audience knew. So there was a lot of uh, that kind of stuff. I mean, the other big difference, guys, is that unlike today, where to a great degree, the programming department in most radio stations is kind of serving the sales department when it comes to promotions. It wasn't like that in 1980. Back then, programming really had uh, an awful lot of sway over what we did and what we didn't do. So 
in order for a salesperson to walk into my office and go, hey, I've got a really cool idea for a promotion, it had better be damn good or I would just, you know, show them the door. Sometimes as rudely as it sounds, I mean, there was really very much a lot of friction between programming and sales at a lot of stations and ours was no exception. So they had to really bring some good stuff in order for us to do it. Otherwise, you know, I would say 90% of our promotions were programming. We had a uh, station softball team. And back then there were these softball leagues that were comprised of radio station teams and ad agency teams. So, you know, we did that kind of stuff. But when a lot of bands came to town, we'd play them in softball for free. I mean, we had a diamond across from the radio station and we would routinely play Journey and the Doobie Brothers and Mellencamp's band and all that stuff. And it was just so much fun, you know, uh, and, and, and the bands were very much in that kind of early stage success thing. So they were bending over backwards. So we had artists in and out of the radio station all the time. And that was a very big part of our promotion. And of course, concerts. And that is obviously similar to what it would normally be today if there were concerts. More of this air check session is next. Are you ready to tell some stories from the studio and beyond? We'd love to hear them. Email aircheckme at gmail.com to join Rich DeSisto and Paul Kelly on Aircheck, a podcast about radio's personality from radio personalities. Now, you mentioned teams. You're talking about the Journey team comes in, the John Mellencamp team. I wanted to ask you about your team. Who was on Riff when you programmed? Oh, I was so lucky. I had the dream team, man. I, I I had really the greatest air staff pound for pound, day part for day part that you could have. So I actually felt the pressure, Paul, because if you couldn't win with these guys, I mean, it was like coaching the Yankees or the Lakers, right? So, <laughs> so, so I... <laughs> So I had JJ and the and the morning crew uh, in in mornings and and they were really you know kind of that first sort of shock jock thing. Steve Dahl had been in the market ahead of time, and both JJ and George Beyer, who was the character voices of Dick the Bruiser and all these different characters, actually were part of the Dahl show at W four. And when Dahl went to Chicago, Jim Johnson JJ decided, you know what, I'm going to be a morning guy, and I'm going to actually sit in with this crazy voice guy and thus JJ and the morning crew were born in typical ABC fashion we uh, we let them uh, become popular and then stole them uh, <laughs> And uh, I don't, you know, there weren't a whole lot of contracts in those days. So we had JJ and the morning crew, morning drive, middays, 10 to 2 was Ken Calvert, who was just a star. I mean, the, the guy had worked at uh, ABX here in Detroit, legendary radio station, and then was a record guy with Capitol. He was working Bruce uh, Springsteen and Bob Seeker and all those guys. So Kenny was uh, really connected. And then the dean of Detroit radio was an afternoon drive, Arthur Penhallow, Arthur P who ended up in that uh, shift for, I don't know, 25 or 30 years. He was one of the original jocks on the station. And, you know, he was the guy, if you if you know anybody in Detroit radio, he was the baby uh, kind of thing. Uh, that, that I just I just hurt my throat doing that. But Arthur would do that routinely a number of times uh, in his show. And I know it sounds weird if you've never heard it before, but that was kind of like his audio signature before we knew what audio signatures 
uh, were. I, I had Steve the Kid Costan, 6 to 10 at night, my kind of street guy. Karen Savelli, 10 to 2. Air shifts back then were only four hours long. And then overnights was the Riff Rock Cafe, which was a progressive rock show hosted by Carl Coffey, who was good enough to be doing middays at any other station in any major market. And we had him on overnights. I'd like to tell you about a fantastic radio station. I'd like to tell you about a totally awesome radio station for sure. Lots of radio stations are trying to imitate WRIF. I'm back to tell you that no one does it quite like Riff. There's our original five-in-a-row guarantee, three Heart Plaza concerts, and, of course, Riff's great rock and roll music. Plus... JJ. And the morning crew. Ken Calvert. Arthur Penhallow. Steve Costan. And Karen Savelli. In Detroit Radio, there's Riff. And then there's everyone else. Baby! I had this unbelievable air staff. Even our part-timers were studs. So when Wheels came along, basically with no DJs, people with first names who who didn't talk very much, the joke was, you know, hi, I'm Austin, and this is Boston on 98.7 <laughs> Detroit's Wheels. And, and that's pretty much all they said. So, you know, here we were. You know, this content-rich radio station. But, yeah, we talked a lot. And we talked about stuff going on in Detroit. And we talked about Detroit sports. And we, we talked about everything. It was very much a lifestyle station. But, you know, you're kind of living on the edge a little bit when you're dealing with a segment of the audience that is like, yeah, it's all great, but shut up and play Aerosmith, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, that that's kind of the line that you have to walk when you're kind of working for a personality rock station. But I learned a lot. Lot, man I mean it, it was just and it was a great time to be in radio you know radio really mattered uh, to people we broke music left and right and there was a lot of music to break you know I mean you go back to what was coming out in the 70s and and the 80s and I mean we had multiple albums a week and we played albums you know I mean there was always a suggested single but you know if there was a new journey album I mean we would uh, needle drop it as the term was where you literally would drop the needle onto every track for 30 seconds, put it in the air studio with a few recommendations, and maybe for a week or two, you'd play uh, half a dozen tracks <laughs> from uh, from the new Jay Giles album, and then uh, kind of talk to the jocks a little bit about, hey, well, you know, what are the phones saying? What do people like? What do they want to hear? We would call record stores to do research. We did a little bit of call out with the audience where we played song hooks down a phone line for people but we basically just sort of cobbled it together and did it kind of on instinct and gut even here i was ronnie research walking into this radio station a lot of what ended up working out was pretty gut driven rich should we tell ronnie research here that we've got austin coming on in an upcoming episode <laughs> i'd love to meet him actually yes he did play uh, more than just boston but uh <laughs> I always loved the way I'm Austin, here's Boston sounded. It just I'm Austin, here's that little old band from Texas. <laughs> Fred, I would think a, a station like The Riff always had a powerful morning show, and JJ and the morning crew being one of them. Morning shows typically provide that powerful anchor for the rest of the day's programming, as we know. But as COVID hit, it forced people to change and develop new habits. They began working from home, spending less time in the car. And as you know, the research guy, uh, the car is where radio listening is king. But the pandemic reduced those opportunities. And Morning Drive specifically suffered. It's coming back, though, right? The crucial 7 a.m. hour has made a rebound, but it's still not at pre-COVID levels. Talk a little bit about these new force listening habits and how they are and will affect radio moving forward, morning shows or otherwise. 
I think it's going to uh, normalize, and I think it already has uh, a number of stations. You know, the typical morning show is on from 5 to 9, 5 to 10, 5.30 to 9. They vary. Uh, but what uh, a number of stations have done since COVID on, on the, I don't want to say assumption, because I think for a lot of people it is uh, true, uh, not everybody gets up as early as they used to. And so a lot of morning shows were pushed to 7 to 11. And in some cases, even a little bit later than that, to kind of adjust to the changes. But I think things are normalizing, even though work from home will be with us long after COVID goes away. You know, it's hard to think about, you know, the Schuylkill there in Philadelphia not being crowded in, in the morning. I mean, it will be crowded, maybe not back to the way it was three or four years ago, but there will still be a lot of people driving in the morning hours. So I think morning radio will be uh, pretty much every bit as important as it always has been. And I have found that during COVID, you know, it, it's taken on a, a different level of impact. It is very important for escape. I mean, especially on music stations. I mean, we're, we're all inundated with a lot of bad news, whether it's the pandemic or politics or you name it, 2020 is has really been a year that has tested us all. And so to be able to flip on the radio and hear Preston and Steve or to hear Dave and Chuck the Freak or to hear Tom Bernard or Heidi and Frank, all the great morning shows on rock stations throughout the country, I think it has been a relief for so many people. And, and you know, these people are old friends and companions, but they're also an escape valve. You know, they're a way for you to be able to get on with your life in a familiar, fun, kind of not too heavy way. So I, I think in many ways, personal personalities have really had a more important impact during COVID than perhaps they did back in 2019 when we took all of this for granted. This is an Air Check Rewind, Season 2, Kirby Confer. Kirby, there's somebody on the phone from Capitol Records. They need somebody to MC some gig. I don't know. And the guy said, uh, this is Phil Turner from Capitol Records. Uh, we've got an act coming in. We're wondering, you know, all the other DJs are busy, the guys who are the famous guys on, the, on our station. And, uh, you know, would you be available? And I said, yeah. I, I think I'm going to be able to say, fine, we'll send you a contract for $200. Be, would that be adequate? Yes, sir. That would be, be wonderful. Thank you. So I ran up, called the program director, a guy named Johnny Dark, and I said, Johnny, I got my first gig. He said, what is it? I, I, I don't know, Johnny. I got really excited. I'll have to call the guy back. I called Bill Turner back, and I said, what is it? He said, you haven't heard of him. He said, but they're big in England. They're called the Beavers. Air Check, a podcast about radio's personality from Radio Personalities. Seasons one and two available now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. You can also listen on your smart speaker. Just say, Alexa, play AirCheck Podcast, or OK Google, play AirCheck Podcast. Rich and I were talking about this, and you know, we've got radio industry people that are listening to the podcast, as well as people that are not in the radio industry. So we've got this guy on, he's, ne he's named Fred Jacobs, and he works with radio stations around the country. How did he get his start? What what was your interest in the beginning, holding that transistor radio? Was it to be on mic? Was it to be mixing the music? What, what was it? I actually came into radio late. I mean, uh, so many people who have excelled uh, in this industry knew they wanted to be in radio when they were 11. You know, I mean, they have photographs of themselves holding radios or talking into spoons <laughs> or whatever. I was not that kid, and it really took me well into college before it, 
the pieces sort of started coming together. I'm I'm the oldest child, so I didn't have any older brothers to kind of look up to and go, okay, what do I do here? So uh, I just kind of groped around. But I had a cousin who was in television uh, here in Detroit, and she did expose me to that end of the business. And I originally thought I might want to go into TV and do documentary stuff uh, and uh, took a college course in TV production and hated it. Just hated the idea of being dependent on so many different people in the production cycle. Then when I kind of did the radio thing, it was like, oh, this is great. I can be alone in a little room with just me being able to create and do what I want to do. And so for me, that was the perfect thing. The weird path here is that most people who have excelled in radio and specifically radio programming have come up on the air and kind of worked their way uh, uh, through programming that way. I knew I was not good enough to become a major market radio personality. I mean, I just knew. So I kind of took a backdoor way in and I came in through audience research, which back in the 70s when I first got involved, there wasn't a whole lot of that being done. And so uh, as long as you could kind of get hired doing uh, that kind of thing, and I was lucky. I, I It took me a couple of tries, but I got hired by a company named Frank Maggot, and they're uh, still located in Marion, Iowa, in the middle of nowhere, just a cornfield. But they were the company at that time that did all the TV research and radio research. And so I kind of walked into radio programming through the side door, very much in the mindset of, hey, let's see what the audience likes. I mean, it's great that programmers and, and DJs have great ears and great instincts and all that. But I came up through the research wing where it was about the audience and what do they want to hear and what, what do they love and what are their passions and all that. So I've been able to weave my interest in research and my programming instincts together reasonably well over the years. And it, it has served me well. And the research and the trivia guy in me wants to know, where did you go to school and what was that little room like that you did radio <clears throat> So what was the the call letters? I actually got a bachelor's in nothing, literally. (laughs) It it was one of the early degrees at the University of Michigan Bachelor of General Studies, which was perfectly made for somebody like me who was aimless. So I kind of got to take a lot of different classes and a lot of different things, which actually worked out pretty well. But I did end up getting a master's in telecommunication at Michigan State. And the only required course for the entire degree program was a research methods course. And I thought, ah, it's bullshit. Do I really want, I mean, I, I want to be splicing tape and producing things and being creative and all that stuff. But I had to take this damn research methods class and it was very statistics heavy, as you can imagine. And mm-hmm. I, I could barely balance a checkbook at that point. I'm not much better <laughs> at it now. But the class lit up the light bulb for me. And uh, I ended up getting a grant from the National Association of Broadcasters to do uh, a research study that turned out to be kind of controversial. So it was real cool. But along the way, I worked at uh, campus radio at Michigan State. Uh, Michigan State had a huge network. It was uh, the MSN, Michigan State Network, and there were affiliates. It was all carrier current in those days, believe it or not, which for people who don't know what the hell carrier current is, it literally was radio that came through the radiators in the dorm rooms. And I believe there were seven affiliates, and I worked for a while at WFEE in Fee Hall, of course. 
so so that that was sort of my beginning and frankly that was kind of how I sort of established for myself hey you know you're okay on the air but you're you're not that good you you better figure out a different kind of way into this wonderful world of radio because it's not going to be entertaining people on a mic what kind of show did you do you walked in with a stack of vinyl and what was it exactly it was a progressive rock show uh i was very into uh country rock back in those days so it was uh the eagles jackson brown uh linda ronstadt poco uh the birds you know all the, the asylum artists electro yes, asylum exactly the ea <laughs> artists that's exactly right and i i just ate that stuff up i mean rock and roll kind of mashed together with a pedal steel guitar was just the greatest thing ever so but i i I love the Beatles and the Stones. I mean, I, I I was really lucky. I mean, you know, I I was a young teen when the Beatles hit America, so the timing couldn't have been better. I mean, to grow up and at the beginning of the British invasion was just huge. And I mean, little did I know at that time that you know a big part of my career would end up being classic rock, and and that all that stuff I loved listening to as a kid would actually kind of come together as as a career path. So really kind of cool when you can get paid for doing what you love you know this episode of air check continues right after this shameless begging for your radio stories you got one more than one taking what we can get email aircheckme at gmail.com to join rich desisto and paul kelly on air check a podcast about radio's personality from radio personalities now in the early 80s when you were at uh, at riff in detroit fred you had uh, an unusual, unexpected arrival to the uh, audio market. It was called MTV, and it was uh, something else that radio, well, uh, you would say whether or not it was poised for, uh, but your reaction as that came along? I was uh, freaked out. Uh, I, it, it, <laughs> I mean, there's just no other way to put it. I mean, it was amazing. I mean, I on the one hand, loved to watch it. But on the other hand, it started becoming very clear to me, Paul, that while radio owned new music discovery prior to MTV, all of a sudden the record people were were walking music videos into 1515 Broadway in New York, and MTV was really beginning to break a lot of the music that radio used to break. And of course, they had incredible access to some of those artists. I mean, one of the problems that you'd have in a market like Detroit or Philly or Los Angeles was that when an artist came to town, they would have to either visit all four stations and do their interview, or they'd have to say, you know what, we're not going to visit any of them. It's just mm. too much work to do that, so we'll see you at the concert, guy. And and then you would turn on MTV and there they would be, right? Sitting around looking great, shooting it with Mark Goodman and 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 Martha Quinn and all the old MTV VJs. So no, I was really flipped out. I remember going to a radio and records convention. That was the big convention that we all would go to. And they had Les Garland as the keynoter uh, that year, who was a big MTV exec. And uh, Les was explaining to us radio guys because he came out of radio too that MTV wasn't a threat that MTV was a compliment to what we were doing in radio and I just thought wow Trojan horse man <laughs> I mean <laughs> Hey everybody, I'm Martha Quinn, Les Garland getting a Governor's Award. Look over at Les right now. You know what you see? 
the heart of rock and roll is still beaten. There was a time when Les loved rock and roll so much, he said, we gotta get rock and roll on TV, all day, all night, in stereo. Too much is never enough. You know who said, I want my MTV? Les Garland. So you could say Les brought us not only Duran Duran, Madonna, and Live Aid, but Snooki, Teen Mom, and Miley Cyrus twerking. This guy wants to eat us all, you know? Uh, so I was very wary of, of MTV, and then ironically, I ended up going to work for them. When I started Jacobs Media, I would say probably around 86, 87, I got contacted by uh, one of the uh, big research uh, guys there, Steve Seidman, and uh, he had heard about my, my work doing focus groups, and they loved focus groups back then, Bob Pittman, who was still running MTV, uh, loved hearing people talk um, as opposed to just looking at data or so I was told. And um, I happened to be very good at sitting in a room with 12 strangers and getting them to talk and getting them to explain what it was that they loved and hated and all that stuff. And I, I enjoyed the hell out of that. I still do. I conduct focus groups now on Zoom. Thank you, COVID. Uh, but but uh, yeah, I do a lot of that stuff to this day. So I came into MTV and ended up doing work in that building for, oh God, probably around 15 years. I did a lot of the MTV work in the mid to late 80s. I switched over to VH1 uh, <laughs> probably... Uh, around 1990, um, I did Comedy Central stuff for them. Uh, it wasn't Comedy Central at the time. That turned out to be a merger between them and HBO. But I was really lucky. I, I got to do focus groups at a very high level in New York. And the fact that it, it was MTV VH1 for the most part really made it a lot of fun. And I learned a lot from that process that I was able to discreetly share with uh, radio clients for the most part. Of course, I probably stole a couple of things along the way too, but but it was cool. I mean, you know, they were doing so much at MTV. It was just amazing. Fred, you know the phrase, you got to know a good idea to steal one. You do. And, and look, good consultants not only know the good ideas, but make them better. I mean, to a great degree. I mean, that if, if I have a superpower, you know, that's really what it is to be able to see an idea that somebody <laughs> else is doing and go, you know, that's really cool. But if we turn it on its side, and we do it this way, it could even be cooler. So And it'll be ours. Yeah, and we'll steal it, right? <laughs> yeah. If you stole it once, you stole it twice, right? There you go. <clears throat> well, nostalgia always plays a big role in connecting to the audience, right? Uh, and sometimes those memories are not always fun times. The old saying, where were you when X happened, comes to mind. And you just told us how the launch of MTV affected you. But we just passed a tragic anniversary. 40 years ago, December 8th, John Lennon was assassinated. And it's one thing being a fan and processing that news, and it's another being part of the industry. Talk about where you were when that news broke. So uh, I was in New York and uh, one block away from the Dakota. Wow. Yeah, where John and Yoko lived. So they were at 72nd in Central Park West, and I was at 73rd in Central Park West. And so, you know, those little blocks in New York are nothing. Uh, I was watching Monday Night Football, right? Howard Cosell and Don Meredith. I mean, there's a couple of names that 
will date you. And uh, and the announcement came on. Um, Cosell actually, uh, it, that was breaking news in the middle of the football game that Lennon had been shot in front of his home. And I opened the windows and I mean, you could hear the sirens. An unspeakable tragedy confirmed to us by ABC News in New York City. John Lennon outside of his apartment building on the west side of New York City. The most famous, perhaps, of all of the Beatles. Shot twice in the back. Rushed to Roosevelt Hospital, dead on arrival. Hard to go back to the game after that news flash. No internet in those days, 1980. And I had uh, a phone installed in my little apartment that were direct connections to all the ABC-owned stations, program directors, studio lines, all that kind of stuff. So I got on the phone and I started making calls. And one thing led to another. And, and I actually started phoning in reports. And the next day, this was more on Rift than anywhere else because they knew me. Uh, at that point, I'd already worked there for a bunch of years, but uh, there was a uh, a little payphone uh, couplet right across the street from the Dakota. And so I phoned in reports from there all morning long as uh, the story unfolded. So it was, it was really one of those moments, you know. I, I think most people who have been in radio for any length of time or television or I guess the news media in general, there are just those big days where something amazing happens and you're in the middle of it, you know you're reporting it or you're getting it on the air or whatever. And that was what was going on with me. And I had been involved with big news stories before, but I, I don't think as directly connected to it as I was. I mean, the crazy part was the Dakota fascinated me before any of this happened. And I was reading all these books about the history of the Dakota. It's an amazing building. It, I mean, it got its name because way out, uh, you know, in the 18, late 1800s, 72nd Street was kind of like way out in the Dakotas uh, for people who were, uh, you know, living around where Trump Tower uh, is today. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the Dakota has got amazing stories uh, behind it. I mean, it's famous residents, all that stuff. There, There's a sci-fi book called Time and Again that actually uh, takes place in the Dakota. So I, I actually knew a lot about the building and its history and the John and Yoko thing long before he was shot. So I I was a great resource for a day <laughs> as as I phoned in reports. So yeah, it was just kind of one of those moments, right? Where, you know, you think about those kind of red letter days in radio. And for me, that was one of them. This is an Air Check Rewind. Season one, Nina Blackwood. They had chartered some buses and uh, took us to this, uh, you know, funky bar in New Jersey. And the excitement in that room and the anticipation was like nothing I've ever experienced prior or after. And when that, uh, you know, the, the beginning, the da 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 and that rocket went off. I mean, there were tears, there were yells. You know, it was like a baby being born. Uh, for all these people, many of whom had worked on MTV for months and months and months. And finally, you know, everything was coming to this fruition. Aircheck, a podcast about radio's personality from radio personalities. Seasons one and two available now on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. 
By the way, congratulations on your induction into the National Radio Hall of Fame. The very first consultant uh, to be inducted into uh, into that hall. So that's uh, that's a yeah, pretty, pretty nice thing. Crazy, right? You know, when uh, when I gave my little speech, I referred to myself as like a place kicker winning the Heisman. Uh, <laughs> a consultant in this august institution is very much an anomaly. And believe me when I tell you this moment is not the least bit lost on me. It, it's kind of like if they gave the Heisman Trophy to a punter, right? I mean, that's, I know. It, what an amazing honor, and I'm still not quite sure how it happened. I mean, you, you look at some of the uh, other people in that august group, it's crazy. But, yeah, I mean, it was a career highlight and uh, certainly validated to my mother that uh, maybe I made the right move, you know. she <laughs> Like a lot of radio parents, you know, there's there's that. So what do you do exactly? That, that question has been asked for decades now um, uh, of me and my two brothers. You know, my, my brothers work with me as well. Them and uh, my staff over the years have had a little something to do with me uh, getting that piece of glass. But yeah, beautiful honor. You also thank your dad in your acceptance speech. I was encouraged to do this by my father, Sidney R. Jacobs, and Saga Zed Christian, both of whom believed in me being a solo act. But I never really went it alone. All along, I've had a kitchen cabinet of caring advisors who have guided me along the way. Steve Goldstein, Buzz Knight, Dave Hamilton, Tim Sabian, Greg Strasol, and so many others who could pull me aside and let me know when I was actually doing something that made sense or being a jerk. Talk about how your father's influence led you to become a consultant. Ed Christian, who is still around out there, he uh, owns Saga Communications. Back then, the company was called Josephson. It was not owned by Ed. It was owned by a guy named Marvin Josephson, who was a talent agent who bought radio. And uh, Ed was running WNIC in Detroit, uh, among other stations uh, in the company. And he was my first call. Um, when the news broke that I had left Riff, he called and said, hey, what are you doing? And I said, I don't know. I'm going to take the summer off and kind of figure it out. I may go back and go to work for a research company or I, I may I may not. I mean, I don't know. He said, why don't you come and do some research for me and my stations and that way I'll get cheap research and you'll have time to kind of catch your breath and figure it out. And so I did that. And then Ed started whispering in one ear and my dad started whispering in the other ear, you know, you're 32 years old, you got no expenses, you're doing all right. I mean, if there's a time to gamble, it's now, why don't you start your own company? And so I was really getting it from both sides. My dad always owned his own companies. I mean, he was never, you know, wildly successful, far from it. But uh, always would tell me, you know, that when you're working for yourself, you don't have to answer to anybody else. And there's a certain freedom there, which there is. And so I did it. And I really didn't know what I was doing. And I didn't have a business plan or any of that stuff. I, I made a lot of uh, seriously incorrect assumptions. I, I, I wish I still had the legal piece of paper because I actually uh, drew on a, a legal page on the left all the people that would very likely hire me once I became a researcher. And then on the right, all the people that probably wouldn't, but I kind of knew them and, and whatever. 
and the truth was almost the opposite of that. The people that I thought would throw business at me did not, but I was shocked by some of the places where business actually came in from. And it was really gratifying and I got to meet a lot of people. I was not at all connected during those days. I had spent really my radio career at ABC, which was a very insular kind of world. We all loved each other, but we didn't get out much, you know, and they, they didn't like us mixing it up in the record community and stuff. It was very tight terms of the legal restrictions and all that stuff. And so I didn't have a whole lot of contacts when I started and I had to learn what networking was and all that, but it's worked out pretty well. And, you know, at the beginning, people would occasionally uh, uh, offer me a job, even when I was on my own, maybe thinking he can't be serious about this. (laughs) But uh, the job offers did stop about 25 years ago. I think people realized, okay, he, he's going to, this is for real. He's going to continue to do this. So I never envisioned it being kind of my life's work, but it has sort of become that. Air check season two is here. Who thought this would happen? I know I didn't. Air check season one includes episodes featuring Nina Blackwood, Eddie Trunk, Danny Bonaducci, and more. Air check season one available now on Apple podcasts and Spotify. You did allude to your superpower a little bit earlier about uh, having that knack of, of seeing something, an opportunity, and and making it happen. And yeah, in the early 80s, there was not a format yet called classic rock, but there was something that you saw, there was something happening within the industry that you perceived there's a hole here somewhere. What, what was it? So I was at Riff. And we were a typically broad AOR station, which was the acronym for Album Oriented Rock. That's all over the road, all over the road. And that's exactly what they were. I mean, you 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 would play the Beatles and the Stones and the Who and Led Zeppelin on the one hand. And then you'd play all the new stuff like Loverboy and Def Leppard and all that stuff. And and I started seeing in the research, Paul, that the younger end of our audience was not excited by the music from the 60s that we were playing. And conversely, um, our older audience, which at that time was guys in their 30s for the most part, were not uh, exactly uh, pumped up by a lot of the new music coming out. And so I started thinking, and MTV was a part of it, because MTV sort of dragged everything new. I mean, MTV was all about the new stuff. You know, it was Michael Jackson, and it was Madonna, and, and it was all that stuff. And so radio started gravitating in that same direction. And, and to a great degree, a lot of the older rock began to disappear, or at least be thinned out of playlists. And so I started thinking, what if there was a format that just played the great rock and roll from the 60s uh, through the 70s? And I got together with my former boss, Tom Bender, who at that point was in Dallas, Texas, programming uh, or managing uh, a dead AM news station looking for something to do. And believe it or not, back in those days, AM stations occasionally played music and made a living at it. And uh, we started talking about what maybe popping this format on this Dallas AM. And that's what we did. And it actually got ratings. And uh, it took a while, but eventually I started finding uh, FM customers and it kind of went from there. We've turned on a brand new FM station. It's WCXR 105.9, Washington's classic rock. 
nothing but classic rock. The Beatles, Pink Floyd, Bruce Springsteen, The Who. At WCXR, we haven't forgotten what rock and roll is all about. WCXR 105.9. Hello, Washington. WCXR 105.9, Washington's classic rock. I had to leave Riff in order to make it happen. I mean, I saw the opportunity at Riff, but there was nothing I could do there. We had a perfectly, wonderfully successful radio station playing everything, and current music at that time was great. I mean, you know, there was a lot of really good stuff coming out. It's just that the format kind of expanded like a rubber band, you know, and at a certain point, you're not pleasing anybody by trying to please everybody. And so Classic Rock started as a niche format, and then... As it turned out, we we started knocking out some really big, real famous album-oriented rock stations that had been around for a long time. So it kind of was exciting. Uh, we, we we had a really good run with the format, and it continues to be very viable to this day. What was the initial reaction to the format? It, it came on the air. It was obviously very different. It was uh, a, little, a little dustier than what else was on the dial. Well, the audience loved it. They went crazy. You know, a lot of things were happening culturally, too. You know, there was MTV, which we talked about. Um, I actually uh, got a lot of inspiration from the movie The Big Chill, which came out at exactly that time. And the soundtrack, to a great degree, it's a little bit more oldies-oriented, but it really had that, you know, old-school flavor to it that the radio format was kind of trying to uh, em- embellish. So, so that was a thing. And believe it or not, the other weird thing that culturally happened was Coca-Cola. And you may remember at that time, they came out with a brand new product called New Coke. Introducing the new taste of Coca-Cola. In this country, the best have a way of getting better, and Coke just did. From today, there's a new taste, a new standard against which colas will be judged. Management of this company honestly and truly reveres our consumers. More than we revere a century-old formula. I've never been as confident about a decision as I am about the one we're announcing today. Well, today, Coke announced a new real thing, a change in his formula. And as Mike Jensen reports, Pepsi said, baloney. Can somebody out there tell me why Coke did it? Why have they changed? First, they said they were the real thing. Then they said they were it. Then kablooey, they changed. Now, I'm going to try my first Pepsi. But I still want to know why Coke changed. Mm. Now I know why. Pepsi, the choice of a new generation. In 60 days, they knew they were in big trouble. People (laughs) absolutely hated this stuff. And they didn't know what to do, and they decided, all right, we're going we're gonna to literally kill new Coke and go back to old Coke. But they didn't want to call it old Coke because that doesn't sound very appealing. And so they changed the name to Classic Coke. I'm Don Keogh, president of the Coca-Cola Company. When we brought you the new taste of Coke, we knew that millions would prefer it, and millions do. And we knew that it would beat the taste of our major competitor, and it does. What we didn't know was how many thousands of you would phone and write asking us to bring back the classic taste of original Coca-Cola. Well, we read and we listened, and you know the rest. They're both yours, the new taste of Coke and Coca-Cola Classic. Your right of choice is back. And they were Classic Coke for a long time. They, They kept the C word on there for years and years and years. 
And that was the beginning of all these consumer products containing the word classic. Well, the format was already on the air for a while at that point. And so the timing was great. And it, it really, I think, in a way, from a brand standpoint, helped to cement the credibility of the format and the music as sort of being timeless and all of that, and maybe not quite as musty uh, as it really was, because, of course, we, we, we really didn't play much new. We experimented in the early days. You know, if Bob Seger came out with a new album, we would do these, you know, kind of twofers of uh, old Bob Seger and the new Bob Seger or, you know, old Eagles and the new Eagles, but never really worked out all that well. It was more of a, uh, you know, just kind of a little feature thing than it was anything else. So yeah, the format really traded in nostalgia to a great degree, but there's a huge market in nostalgia as I learned and <laughs> and as I've been learning uh, in, in all the days since, yeah. One format uh, invention wasn't enough. Uh, early no. 90s alternative grunge comes along and you decide, hey, let's, uh, let's create this other format called The Edge. Talk a little bit about how that came about. So um, classic rock was going very well, and I felt like, in a way, I was a one-trick pony, <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't like it. And I, one of my early clients was 91X in San Diego. 91X plays the new music first. In excess. Talking Heads. The Cult. Simple Minds. U2. Psychedelic Furs. Tears for Fears. For years, these bands were completely ignored by those radio stations that played it safe. What music will those safe radio stations be playing in the future? The music that 91X is playing right now. 91X. On the cutting edge of rock and roll. They were kind of the second alternative station after K-Rock. And uh, the late, great Rick Carroll uh, was their original consultant. So, I mean, they were very early on into this. And I was hired by Noble Broadcasting uh, probably about a year or so after uh, Rick Carroll was uh, shown the door. And uh, John Lynch, who uh, owned Noble at that time, heard about me that I, I was a good format guy. And so he, he brought me into a kind of tame 91X. And so I did. Um, but I, you know, I ended up teaching them formatics and they ended up teaching me about modern rock, which is what it was called uh, back then. And I really came to enjoy the format. It never got much airplay in Detroit, but you know, on the left coast, uh, that stuff was really big and, and continues to be to this day. And so when I started thinking in, in kind of the late eighties about, is there an act two and is there a second format? I started thinking that it should be this stuff and so I uh, came up with the idea of the edge 47 brothers and sisters my name is Alex on the country's original edge the most copied radio station of the 90s this is the country's first edge brothers and sisters can I hear an amen or Obi-Wan amen to you brother Alex 94.5 KDGE Dallas Texas now, now. 40 minutes of non-stop edge music on 94.5 KDGE. 94.5. KDGE. The edge. 94.5 KDGE. The edge. Look, Ma, 
No hands. We're running with scissors. We left the lights on. The fridge door's open. We're drinking from the milk. Um, I think probably influenced by uh, uh, the edge in U2 and the cutting edge of rock, which was a pretty popular slogan. 91X used that slogan pretty effectively as did a number of other stations. So I thought the brand actually was pretty cool. And I could own it too. That was the other thing. I never owned classic rock. I mean, you know, if, if I was getting kickbacks and payments from every station that calls itself classic rock i'd i'd have my own <laughs> island at, at this point so i i i was not able to take advantage of that and i thought hey second time around i'm going to name a format and actually copyright it and so i did i service marked it and um the the mistake i made uh and and it was severe nobody remembers it now so i'll tell you we were too early it it, it was not ready either the, either that or we weren't doing it right i mean that could have been part of it as well but we came up up with the idea of the edge about two years before Kurt Cobain happened. Mm. And so, I mean, there was a lot of decent music out there, but it wasn't really a mainstream national kind of thing like classic rock was. And so it was a struggle and it was really hard. And it really wasn't until grunge happened that everything kind of lined up and we sort of happened to be at the right place at the right time. And, and then it was like, whoa, let's go. And uh, yeah, the, uh, the, the early 90s in particular was a great time for The Edge. We had a lot of them out there. Uh, there's still some out there today and they're still writing us checks, uh, which is cool. We don't even consult them anymore, but uh, we do get the annual check every year for using the service mark. And, and that's another story. This is an Air Check Rewind. Season two, Debbie Calton. I ended up staying in Philadelphia for 36 years, which is amazing to me because Philadelphia can be tough, you know, on newcomers, you know. The fact that I was embraced over the years by tried and true, died in the wolf Philadelphians, Philadelphians, <laughs> you know, really meant so and still means so much to me. Air Check, a podcast about radio's personality from radio personalities. Seasons one and two available now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. You can also listen on your smart speaker. Just say, Alexa, play AirCheck Podcast or OK Google, play AirCheck Podcast. Well, Fred, we're talking a lot about uh, all of the different audio that's out there. And we, we get into the 2000s and here comes this product called Sirius Satellite Radio. <laughs> but, but then here comes a product that's called XM Satellite Radio. So you have two different satellite radio uh, organizations coming on the scene, as well as online radio stations. Dot coms were taken off, and people were just creating their own radio stations on dot coms. And then streaming services come along, Pandora, Spotify, uh, and they've expanded beyond that. You know, we can laundry list them forever on here. Uh, what happens to radio amongst all this different stuff coming on? The the battle for the uh, the ear, the uh, the audio device that's in that car, man. That's uh, that's something else at this point. Whole different game. And, uh, you know, I came up in radio as you guys did, too, when uh, we really owned it. You know, I mean, we were the only place to go for audio and new music and all that stuff. I mean, you know, you got into any car in the world and there we were right in the center of the dashboard. I mean, we might have had to share that real estate a little bit with an A-track player or a cassette deck or a CD uh, player. But for the 
the most part, radio had that primacy in the dashboard and everything you just talked about. I mean, that laundry list of options all of a sudden comes on in, in the mid to late 90s. And I think most radio people were really caught off guard. I, I think there was so much money in radio, so much profits and cost of radio stations. I mean, you could make an amazing living just flipping radio stations. I mean, we talk about flipping condominiums now. Back then, people were flipping radio stations, buying a radio station for $50 million, running it for uh, a couple of years and turning around and selling it for $80 million. And I mean, that's the kind of money that was floating around. And so a lot of the captains of industry at that point, I think, looked at some of these fledgling technologies and thought, yeah, whatever. Uh, I'm, I'm sure some bleeding edge people... <laughs> Well, we'll buy satellite radio or we'll buy an iPod or or any of that stuff. But we're radio. We're going to be fine. We've been around since Marconi. So everything's going to be good. And of course, that was a, a lot of overconfident thinking there that was just flat out wrong. The break for me is we started doing tech surveys about 15, 16 years ago, where we started researching what radio listeners were doing when they weren't listening to radio. Radio. And even back in the early 2000s, I mean, it was amazing. Loyal radio listeners were doing all this other stuff. They were listening to satellite radio. They were streaming things. Eventually, they started listening to podcasts when that came on. And so... We started tracking all of this stuff, and the next thing you know, we're sort of out here in the wilderness going, hey, radio, you, <laughs> you guys got to wake up, man. I mean, there's all this stuff going on, and it's going to eat our lunch one day if we don't get involved and do some of this stuff on our own. And so... That's sort of been the story of the last 15 years is uh, trying to kind of hold the industry's hand and go, go through all of this with a machete and, and, and help the radio broadcasting business transition to the digital age. And some have been more successful at it than others. Yeah, those tech surveys, they, they shed so much light on these new shiny objects year after year. And we talked about the importance of the car radio. That's another important cause that Jacobs Media has focused uh, with the Dash Conference. And then there's the 600 plus Jake apps created through the years all to grab the attention of radio. You know, I think the movement, though, towards digital has grown over the last few years. But what was digital then has evolved, right? And perhaps this pandemic pushed a little harder, too, and revealed to radio that, hey, we're still kind of behind here. Yeah, it has accelerated things. I, I think, you know, what you just said about the pandemic is true of a lot of things. You know, if, if it was trending pre-pandemic, in many cases, since COVID, things have really accelerated. I mean, you know, look at the Pella bikes. I mean, they they were gaining in popularity in 2019, but now it's like, oh my God, I'm stuck at home. I can't go to the club. I mean, maybe I'll get one of these things. I mean, same thing with Zoom meetings and Skype and stuff, FaceTime. I mean, all that had been around and a bunch of people were doing it, but not like today. So yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think COVID has accelerated a lot of these trends. I mean, look, the other part of it, we're talking about it from the audience standpoint, right? More and more people are streaming or listening to podcasts and all that. But the other side of the coin is the revenue side. And that's been the other revolution here because here's the Radio Advertising Bureau, which is the sales arm of the radio broadcasting industry saying, 
hey, hey, fellas, there's more money being made in the digital space than there is in the broadcast space. So, you know, you can just stay here in tower and transmitter land for as long as you want, but you're you're kind of in a polar ice cap kind of situation where every year it just kind of shrinks and recedes a little bit more. If you don't expand out into digital, you may not be around. And so, I mean, we're lucky in a way. We've had the newspaper industry to watch screw things up and and they they certainly have, right? I mean, they, they, they were very much like us in radio, assuming that none of this could ever possibly happen to them. And now we've got, what, a handful of really good newspapers left in the U.S., and that's pretty much it. So I think most people in radio now, especially in corporate leadership positions, truly get it. But the hard part is, how do you fix the airplane while it's flying at 35,000 feet? <laughs> that, that, that's, that's the key. You know, you you still got to deliver your numbers and you got to please your stockholders and 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 you got to you got to still do it with your traditional model but you've got to adapt at the same time. It's very challenging. We're also competing against a whole different type of um player at this point. We're competing with Facebook and we're competing with Google and we're competing with Amazon and we're competing with Netflix and satellite radio. So it's a whole new game out there. And, you know, you guys remember the old adage, uh, having a radio license was thought to be a license to print money. And it, and it was. Today, um, it, it's not so simple. And making a lot of money in the radio business now is a real art. It, it's not just something that happens just because you happen to have a license. All the technology that's out there, we, we all enjoy it. We love it. But from the early days, we loved... Uh pulling that vinyl album out of the jacket, dropping it onto the turntable, putting the tone arm on, letting letting something fly. Rich is a huge uh, vinyl collector. I've got a couple of albums here at the house too. Um, whether or not it's, it's the turntable or CD player or if you pull it up uh, digitally, Fred, who is your go-to artist or is that album at the end of the week... This is where I'm going. So um, I was always a big Steely Dan fan way back from the beginning. I actually saw them a number of times in concert in the early years. They stopped touring altogether. I mean, nobody knew this was going to happen, uh, but they really became more of a studio band for a number of years. So I was very lucky to have seen them live several times in the the early days. But when Donald Fagan started making uh, solo records, that was the moment for me because I, I thought he was just, and still do, uh, uh, thought he's a complete genius. So for me, it is uh, The Nightfly, which is his very first solo album. And I guess, oddly enough, it, it's kind of got a radio theme to it. The title track is about a DJ on a radio station going a little nuts, <laughs> as as uh, DJs sometimes uh, do. But yeah, and, and the record came out at a good time for me. I took a road trip and uh, literally grabbed that cassette that had come in and didn't know what I had. And, and I, I grabbed several others as well, and I listened to them all on this road trip. But I think Nightfly was the one that I probably listened to more than anything else. So, yeah, that would have to be my all-time favorite go-to, uh, go-to record. So we know you like charts and graphs, Fred. You're the research guy. Uh, you also attend the Consumer Electronics Show, the CES convention every year. So there's technology. And unfortunately, this year, the 2021 convention will be a more virtual presentation due to COVID. And I'm sure you're heartbroken. But tell us something that perhaps many people don't know about Fred Jacobs. 
So yeah, uh, the the CES thing has become a thing, and I do love technology and I love new stuff. You know, it's it's not like I gravitate away from classic rock, but I, I like to listen to new stuff as well. I'm a big fan of Jack White and a number of other artists. But now I'll do the complete 180 on what I just said. I am a huge unabashed Perry Mason fan. So, How about that? I know, I know. So who's Perry Mason? Do I have to explain who Perry? I I do, don't I? That's an Ozzy Osbourne song, isn't it? It is an Ozzy Osbourne song. Actually, you know, HBO dusted off the uh, the franchise about a year ago and started a, a Perry Mason uh, series. We'll see if it gets renewed for a second year. Very different from the original, but yeah, Perry Mason was a uh, detect or was a uh, like a lawyer detective uh, series written by a guy named Earl Stanley Gardner back in the 20th century that became a very popular TV show in the 50s and 60s. And so I don't know what it is with me and Perry. Um, I don't know what it is with a lot of lawyers and Perry, but if you talk to (laughs) lawyers of a certain age, they'll tell you they were influenced by watching these old Perry Mason shows where, you know, in the last 90 seconds, he uncovers the uh, the person who did it. And it's completely illogical. I mean, you know, you can intently watch the entire hour and have no idea who done it. And I mean, just all these plot holes and everything else. But God, it was just a fun show. So, yes, I own the entire DVD collection of Perry Mason. I think it's eight or nine or ten seasons, starting in black and white and moving to color. So there's a fun fact that will endear me to absolutely no one. (laughs) But you asked and I answered. What's your advice to uh, any of the industry newbies out there that are coming along? Rich uh, does some work with... uh, Connecticut School of Broadcasting, so he's you know got classrooms of, of people aspiring to get into, well, is it the audio business? Is it the video business? Is it the podcasting business? What's, what's your advice? My advice is similar to what it would have been 40 years ago in terms of work hard, network hard. You know, as we talked about early on, that was not one of my strengths, certainly not a superpower. And I have learned over the years the importance of getting out there and meeting people, learning from people, all that stuff. The more people that you get to know, things just sort of have a way of happening. But all that said, if if there's a way to focus on learning skills that maybe are in shorter supply among conventional radio people, like shooting video and editing video and doing all that, which seems like what? That's counterintuitive. We're talking radio, right? Where we paint pictures with our words, but video is such an important part of the brand building personality equation. So learning how to work in video, uh, learning how to work on the social media side of the street, producing podcasts like you guys are doing, critically important because that's part of the future. But yeah, I I would work on a broad skill set, but maybe majoring in some of those areas that most radio people never bothered to learn or maybe just never existed when they came into the business. But you really got to work hard and want it bad. It's a tough industry to break into. But I mean, couldn't we have said that back in 1982? I mean, uh, you know, it's always been an, a, a tough business to break in. But when if you're good and and you show your versatility and you want it badly enough, you can make a career of it. Crystal ball predictions for 2021. <laughs> Pass. <laughs> do, do I have to? Um, uh well, I, we I don't we probably don't have enough time for that. Good, one. good. I like that idea. I uh, 
I mean, you know, this podcast will really wear well if we keep looking backwards because that won't change. <laughs> if we look forwards, I'll be wrong about everything because who could have predicted 2020, you know? And that's true. Everybody's five-year plan in 2015 was wrong. Ain't it true? I mean, when I first saw that little thing online, I just thought, wow, ain't that the truth? And I mean, you know, that's the question that everybody asks in interviews, right? Where do you see yourself in five years? Uh, no, no, nobody foresaw themselves here, <laughs> to say the least. But I, you know, I think we're learning about ourselves. I mean, it's it's hard. Yeah, it's quite a ride. Well, we'll get through it. I have a lot of confidence in uh, what we do as a society and as a radio business. Fred, I want to thank you so much for your time and being part of AirCheck today. Paul and I, uh, we're looking forward to this conversation, and uh, we're just very pleased that uh, we were able to have it today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it, guys. Thanks for having me on. Fred, thank you again. See you soon. Take care, guys. Fred Jacobs. JacobsMedia.com for more on what Fred and his company are all about. Highly recommend taking a look at the site and his daily blog. Very dialed in. Well, AirCheck Season 2 is in the books. Two seasons of sessions filled with great radio stories. From an original MTV VJ, Philly Radio and Sirius XM radio personalities, TV Child Star turned radio personality, a shock jock, a radio group owner who also happens to be a country radio hall of famer, and two radio vets consulting and coaching radio to be better. And more to come. You can stream or download every episode of AirCheck on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, and you can also ask your smart speaker to play AirCheck Podcast. If you haven't done so yet, make sure you subscribe and also give us a great rating too. Follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash aircheckme. Say hi, tell us what you think, or if you have a favorite episode. This is Rich DeSisto. And I'm Paul Kelly. We'll talk to you soon. See ya. Appreciate you sitting in for this episode of AirCheck, a podcast about radio's personality from radio personalities. We're into season two and more on the way for you. Got questions, comments, or want to be on an upcoming episode? Email aircheckme at gmail.com. Musical props go to Chris Gordon. Announcer props. <laughs> That's me, Greg O'Brien, the OB. Aircheck seasons one and two available now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. You can also listen on your smart speaker. Just say, Alexa, play Aircheck Podcast or OK Google, play Aircheck Podcast. Aircheck is the creation of RDPK Productions.